the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Surf to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. Today we're in for a real treat. The distinguished historian John Cooper is in the house. John Cooper specializes in late 19th and early 20th century American political and diplomatic history with a focus on presidential history. Along with Ray Stannard Baker and Arthur S. Link, he's at the summit of expertise on Woodrow Wilson. His 2009 biography of Wilson is widely regarded as the best one volume rendering of that extraordinary life. Professor Cooper holds emeritus status at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. John Cooper, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank you, Jim. Glad to be here. John Cooper, let's begin at the beginning. In this hinge moment, the early 21st century, why should people study history? Amid the breakneck changes of our time, does the past hold any relevance at all? Does the horse and buggy era, for example, have any lessons for the iPhone moment? Well, first of all, the early 20th century that I work in was the beginning of the automobile era. So uh, despite what they say about everything, well, no, we're not, automobiles aren't dead. They're just supposed to go electric. So uh, uh, plus the problems of politics, of international affairs, uh, there's an awful lot that's, that has not, at, at the heart, has not changed that much. So uh, of course we're going to learn from the past. We don't have anywhere else to learn from. Well, let's talk a little more about that, because you're noted for your tremendous expertise and exploration of that period, the late 19th and early 20th century. And a lot of your readers, I'd include myself, see tremendous parallels in the changes within America and the world. How would you characterize that? What you had then was at the beginning of the 20th century, you had a world order that had been pretty much in place for the better part of a century, but was already beginning to change in flux. Uh, you had two new kids on the block uh, for great powers, namely ourselves and Japan, uh, just a lot of things, uh, and of course, 14 years into the 20th century, we had World War One, And that really, I think, I think just about any historian would say that was a huge turning point and led then to, some call it the short 20th century, namely from there to uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, that you had an era of the two world wars and the Cold War and a shifting balance but shifting balance among, and then for a while, just plain between great powers, superpowers. So understanding that, I think in some ways where we are now internationally is probably more like what was happening before World War I. And that is you have 
multiple multiple actors, major actors on the international scene, and they're still trying to work out their relations with each other. Something we don't have, and I think, frankly, we ought to be grateful for, is we don't have universalist totalitarian ideologies that are competing and vying for world dominance. I mean, we had fascism, we had communism, Whatever else we have now, there's no major power. It's not China. It's not Russia. It's not any other that has some kind of universalist ideology that claims that it wants to make everybody else like them and uh, submit to their, their ideas and their way of life. So that's good. Now, on the other hand, of course, we all know that the Cold War, the standoff uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, for all of its dangers, and they were huge, obviously, nuclear war, uh, still, that lent a certain stability uh, to it. And a lot of people, a lot of leaders on both sides and wise persons on both sides got very much used to that and were able to manage it pretty well. I don't think we should get you know, overly, uh, overly nostalgic about it, but that worked well. We don't have that now. We're, we're not sure. Clearly, China is a rising power. Is there not a rising power? It is a risen power. The question is, what are the Chinese going to do with it? Uh, and what of many responses should we make to it? So, yeah, I mean, we, we've got a, a lot of things uh, we can look, look back to and uh, ponder and uh, learn what they, from what they did right and especially learn from what they did wrong. And also, as you point out in a lot of your very fine writing on that period, it was a time of tremendous turbulence domestically in the United States. Uh, we had changes in business, finance, education, technology, and, and so on that seem every bit as challenging as this moment. Is that a fair summary? Yes, it is. I mean, I'm just, I'm sorry about that. I tried, I tried to get the phone. No worries. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, you're oh. talking about the domestic. Uh, I was looking back look. to your book on pivotal decades, for example, and you yeah. lay out so well the massive changes in American life uh, that are seem to have echoes today and changes in business, finance, technology, education, immigration, technology, and the like. Yeah. One of the things, look, if you, if you want uh, something that makes you think there's nothing new under the sun. One of the biggest issues 100 years ago, and a, a bit more, and afterward too, was what we now call income inequality. It yes. was still this huge gap between increasingly ultra-rich few and not just the poor, but, but ordinary sort of middling, middling folks. This, this was, a, was a terrible problem. It was something that uh, certain reformers, like Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson in particular, uh, tried to address and did address in some ways, uh, particularly with antitrust laws, with various forms of regulation, uh, with the income tax. And by the way, the income tax uh, 100 years ago and a little more was very popular. 
it was an idea whose time had come and is so popular that we've written it into the, into the Constitution. I mean, that's the 16th Amendment. Uh, we'd have to amend the Constitution to abolish the income tax. And, of course, you can whittle it down and how high, how low, what kinds of income it should hit, all of that. But that was, that was an attempt, the income tax, the inheritance tax. Uh, these, these, these were efforts to, uh, to try to address that and maybe whittle it down some. Yeah, they were trying to redistribute, redistribute wealth, uh, but that's what they wanted to do. And, of course, as part of that, too, they were getting rid, they thought, of the corruption of the tariff financing system of government that well, left a total yeah, stench the, around the, the Congress. The, the tariff, the, the, the tariff, it's hard, it's hard to believe, but that was the major defining issue between the two parties. The Republicans were a high tariff party in those days. Yes, they were. And the Democrats were the low tariff party. And which, whenever, whenever either party was in power, its answer was, you know, if times are good, raise the tariff. Those are the Republicans here. Times are good, raise the tariff. Times are tough, raise the tariff. The Democrats come in, same, same, uh, same reasoning, except it's lower the tariff. So this was what was going back, going on back and forth. And the tariff, there was a, a one, one of my favorite characters from the, just before the turn of the 20th century was Thomas Brackett Reed from Maine, the Speaker of the House, known as Czar Reed because of his iron hand. He once said, the only place you'll, and I can't, can't really imitate his main accent very well, but he said, the only place you'll ever pa- pass a perfect tariff is in your mind. <laughs> Congress certainly will not pass it. The tariff has always been an, an interest issue, an interest group issue, pitting different ones, making coalitions. Uh, the Republicans, I think, usually for a long time had the better of it because um, for them, with their constituencies, particularly in the Northeast and the Midwest, the tariff was a win-win. They had business groups, obviously, that profited from this, that needed or wanted protection against foreign competition. And they had labor support because the argument was that if you keep protect us against cheap foreign competition, that way you're being being protected against cheap foreign labor. And I'm still old enough to remember that they used to have a slogan. It was actually the AFL-CIO had a slogan, buy American, the job you save may be your own. (laughs) Obviously, that's still very much around now, the question question of that. And uh, do we profit from uh, greater foreign competition, what we call now globalization? Well, in some ways, you can say, well, it depends on who you are and where you are and what you do. And there was also, as, as you alluded to, a strong regional element. The part of the country that you and I hail from, the South, was often viewing itself as harmed by the tariff system. Well, yeah, there, there, are, two, there are two reasons for that, Jim. One was uh, the South, particularly the two major agricultural crops there, and it, it state mainstays of southern the southern agricultural economy were cotton and tobacco, which were exports. I mean, we produced an awful lot of it. We undersold the world. So, of course, they were making money from exports. And in turn, the, because the South was then not 
so much industrialized. It was gradually industrializing more. <clears throat> they were mainly consumers of industrial products. So, you know, you want to buy a new plow, you want to buy a new wagon, uh, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> if you can have competition with something from Britain or Germany or the components that go into it, then you don't have to pay so much. Conversely, you know, the premier high-tariff state was Pennsylvania because coal and iron and steel all faced stiff foreign competition. <clears throat> and they, they needed, wanted, needed, uh, needed uh, protection against this cheap foreign competition. Now, what happened, though, by the time of the turn of the 20th century, the question was, did they really need it? Did U.S. steel, for example, really have to be protected uh, against imported iron and steel from uh, from Britain or from uh, from from other places? Uh, you know, couldn't they uh, couldn't they get along without it? Well, depends on who you were as to how you answer answer that question. But yeah, that was the tariff. The tariff. The other thing about the tariff, of course, is when when you get a complex issue like that with hundreds, thousands of different economic interests involved. You're going to get lobbying and log rolling. You're going to get trade-offs, all the kinds of things that we think are so terrible. Actually, I think that's the, that's not only inevitable, but I, I think that that's, that's just the, some way the, the, the lifeblood of, of, of various kinds of politics. So, that does lend itself uh, to abuse and to corruption. No question about that. So that, that's one reason. Uh, <clears throat> what had happened was that <clears throat> by 1900, we had two generations which had known nothing but falling prices and nothing but uh, you know, appreciated value of the dollar. Well, after, <clears throat> after, <clears throat> after about 1900, or maybe just before that, Prices started going up. Uh, there was inflation for the first time. And by later standards, uh, it wasn't particularly particularly bad. But if you'd never known anything but steady or even falling prices, then this looked terrible. And uh, it was easy. The Democrats uh, certainly did this. It was easy to blame that on the tariff. But this was the, not only the, the tariff was the, the source of all these high prices people were paying, they also linked it to the big businesses, the trusts. They called it the mother of trusts, which actually was uh, not quite fair because uh, <clears throat> the tariff didn't play that great a role in, in the, the formation of these, of these things. But yeah, those are the things that were going on there. Well, one more point that you've written about so well, and I'd like to just throw out there so listeners can get some more sense of the context that you're laying is that I believe at the turn of the 20th century, U.S. Steel's capitalization was greater than the entire U.S. federal budget. I mean, this is a very different world. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, the U.S. Steel was the first billion-dollar corporation. And in that context, it'd be like saying it was the first $10 trillion, $10 trillion corporation. That, that's the idea of, of the scale. <clears throat> the other thing, a relevant one, is... It's not only a corporation, but there's even a person who, a financier, who 
really was the, the, the great mastermind and uh, behind the formation of so many of these trusts, corporations, trusts, including U.S. Steel, J.P. Morgan. And by 1913, when a House committee investigated concentration of wealth and, and financial power, they found that Morgan controlled $22 billion of capital. And that made him the largest, potentially, the largest single factor in the U.S. economy. Not the largest single private factor, but even more, controlled even more capital than the government itself did. So yes, that, that was the, the degree of concentration. And people, even some conservatives, were not happy with this. You know, this, this was something, something was amiss there. I mean, there, clearly there was a, a, a broad consensus that something needed to be done. Now, of course, then a lot broke down on what actually could or should be done. But yeah, so that was, that, that was, the, that was the, the atmosphere and those are the attitudes. Well, you've laid out a perfect place for Woodrow Wilson to enter the scene. And before we turn to recent controversies relating to his legacy, would you please lay out your case for why Woodrow Wilson is a consequential president and why he's one that we should have particular interest in today? Well, um, to put it on two different, two, two, maybe three different grounds. The first one is as a domestic president. The three great legislative presidents we've had since 1900, and in some ways, you could argue throughout U.S. history because you're looking at something different before 1900. The three great presidents for overseeing and enacting. Uh, consequential, really monumental legislation are Franklin Roosevelt, of course, the New Deal, Lyndon Johnson, the Great Society, and Woodrow Wilson. I mean, some of the things he did, the Federal Reserve, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the income tax, uh, first federal aid to farmers, first uh, aid to labor unions, uh, child labor law, which was later struck down by the Supreme Court. But he got all of these things through, and antitrust, antitrust laws, uh, tariff revision. And unlike FDR, he didn't have this manifest national emergency of the Depression, which FDR had a blank check from Congress throughout his first term. Nor, like Lyndon Johnson, he had not spent his entire adult life, really, on Capitol Hill not only knowing Capitol Hill, but for the last, most of, a lot of before he became president, mastering Capitol Hill. Now you had a guy, Woodrow Wilson was a man who two years before he became president uh, had been the president of a middling sized uh, men's college uh, and no political experience except two years as governor of New Jersey. And what's more, he came from a background which supposedly, <laughs> this always hits home a little bit to me, uh, <laughs> supposedly the kind of the worst background for, for being involved in public affairs or practical things, namely from academia. This guy was fresh from the ivory tower. Now, like anybody who's ever taught in a college or university will tell you that that tower is not so ivory. 
uh, in there. It's not so clean and pure. Anyway, so here he had this this unusual, unlikely background. What he did, though, what, what he brought to the world, a second criterion is, which uh, is for judging presidents, is what did he, someday she, bring to the office? You know, what kind of qualities of mind and thought, character, did he bring to the office and give to the office? Well, what he brought to the office was he has spent his adult life, entire adult life, studying politics, studying it, and always really with one, one great question. How does it really work? And then the corollary to that is how can we make it work better? And for him, that was in a democratic context, meaning making it more transparent, more accountable. So he spent his entire life doing that. And he'd had a, before he became president, he had a, a bit of a trial run at running an organization, namely being college president of Princeton. Uh, and then um, two years as governor of New Jersey. Well, he was a bang up success as governor of New Jersey. The uh, National Governors Association, which uh, rates governors you know, throughout U.S. history, usually rates him have been one of the top three or four, along with Robert McFollett of Wisconsin, Hiram Johnson of California, uh, maybe Thomas E. Dewey of New York. You know, that really, up, up there among, among the, the very best, most effective, most effective governors. Well, that was his trial run. And then when he got into the White House, it was bingo. What he, what he did was his, his great insight or his great prescription was party government. He believed that the party, the effective use of the political party, was the way to bridge the separation of powers and to bring the executive and the legislature together and really get things done. So you've got his success, tremendous success, uh, as a domestic legislative president. You've got the kind of ideas and models he brought and gave to the presidency. And finally, you have international affairs. Now, he was a neophyte at this. Uh, he once said, he said a casual remark he made to a Princeton faculty colleague right after he got elected president was, it would be an irony of fate if my administration had to deal chiefly with foreign problems for all my preparation has been in domestic matters. So this was something that he was not expecting uh, and something that I think he I think he underestimated how prepared he was. He paid attention to international affairs just about as much as anybody in America did in those days, which wasn't much. You know, this was when we believed we could kind of go our own way in the world and, and not worry about it unless we wanted to. And we didn't much. And of course, the great irony of fate that overtook him uh, 14, 15 months into his presidency was World War One. He'd actually had a little bit of trial by fire earlier, having to deal with a revolution down in Mexico. So really, he had to start from not quite ground zero, but he had to, you know, he had to manage uh, certainly one of the worst, absolutely worst international crises in the world and for the United States. And what he tried, what he did was he learned on the job and basically tried to keep us out of the war, but without uh, paying a price of national humiliation or of uh, having a, a, a lot of things he wanted to do in the world 
uh, curtailed. And it was quite a job. And he succeeded at it um, down since 1917. In fact, he'd actually, the, the greatest threat there, of course, was the German submarines. And uh, he'd actually, in early 1916, got the Germans to back down. He, uh, he got, he pushed the threat of war, that threat of war away. And that gave him a respite. That's when he got reelected. Uh, and then, in early 1917, the Germans decided to resume submarine warfare. They did it in full knowledge that this would probably bring the United States into the war. Uh, and Wilson did bring us in very, very reluctantly. Because by this time, he had surveyed the international scene, thought about it, and come up with the idea that you had to have a new world order. A new world order in which there would be an international organization that would be empowered to keep the peace. In other words, you had to have international peacekeeping. That's, that becomes the League of Nations. And he actually unveiled that uh, right fairly early in January 1917, before the Germans announced the submarine warfare. He called it peace without victory, and he had a, a, a really a, a quite, a, quite a, a appealing design for how you could bring this war to an end uh, without winners or losers, any big winners or big losers, and build a more stable, uh, stable international order. Well, of course, the Germans shot that down or sank that with, with their, their, their torpedoes. So then what he did really was to pursue that vision, even though we were belligerents. Uh, and uh, I think one of his great triumphs was the 14 points. In January 1918, he spelled out a peace program, a program well, after the war, which was, it was about as close to peace without victory that, that you could have if our side won. And that, I think, played a major role in bringing the Germans to decide to throw in the towel. You know, of course, they also knew that with uh, the fresh American forces, I mean, we had, we had two, million, two million servicemen in France by the fall of 1918. Uh, and there were another million or million and a half more on the way. So clearly... You know, the, the balance the balance had shifted. The, the Germans knew that um, they couldn't win anymore. Uh, but think about think about 1944 and 1945. What if for all of that they had decided to hold out? And in those days they had won in the East. The Bolsheviks took Russia out of the war, and they really uh, the Germans had carved out a whole new. Uh, many empire there, including Ukraine, for example, which... The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk for, for, for That's uh, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And what, what they could have done, just think about them having, deciding to fight on with no Eastern Front, one in the East. I mean, what, what, what the armistice saved was hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lives and an incredible amount of destruction. Uh, and it shortened the war and that was Wilson's great triumph. The problem was uh, the Germans didn't accept their defeat, uh, and the Allies, for whatever reasons, very soon, within a few years, showed that they had no stomach for trying to enforce that peace settlement, the peace settlement that came out in the Treaty of Versailles. So that uh, 
Wilson put together a real peace program. Of course, he failed to sell it at home, reasons for that. Uh, but he, he painted a vision of a new world order with the United States fully engaged. And that really, it, it's, it's his vision that, uh, that inspired uh, liberal internationalism, which is it, is it dead now? It's certainly not as alive and well as it used to be. Will it come back? Those are some of the big questions now, but it goes that goes back to the Wilson. John Cooper, I'd like to turn your attention for a moment to the shadow of the Civil War. Wilson, I believe, was the first president from the South after the Civil War. He was the sole president, I believe, who experienced as a civilian defeat in war. He's also the sole president to experience occupation by the United States, as odd as that sounds. How significant were these biographical factors, do you think, to Wilson's evolution? Jim, that's, that's I think, a great teasing question about this. You know, obviously, yes, as you said, he was born in the South, born in Virginia, in right at the tail end of 1856. Uh, he saw, as a child, saw the Civil War some, although... He never lived any place where, where the armies were actually fighting. Uh, what he did see were uh, Union prisoners who were, they, what they would bring them back. His father had a church in Augusta, Georgia, and they used the uh, grounds of the church as a holding camp for Union prisoners who were on their way to Andersonville, a notorious prison camp in Andersonville. So he saw that. Uh, eventually, the Union forces did come and, and, and occupy Augusta. Augusta, by the way, was not on the path of Sherman's march to the sea, so it, it was not damaged or destroyed the way a number of other southern cities were. So yeah, he saw those things. But, you know, in all my work there, I, I looked for it and others have looked for it. I don't see that that had all that much impact on him. I, I wanted to see that. I know this, why, why was he so, so keen to uh, create this end World War I and create this, this peace structure? And it would be nice to say that's because he had experienced these traumas as a child and knew what it was, but I didn't find it. And nobody else has either. I mean, yeah, that, that was there, I think, in a subliminal way, but by, by and large, he was not... Not all, personally, not all that much touched by by the war itself. And certainly he did not come out of that, contrary to what many of his critics, particularly Theodore Roosevelt, charged. It didn't make a pacifist of In fact, uh, it's interesting that the first, the next war that the United States fought, the Spanish-American War, uh, he enthusiastically supported. I don't think, I never found any evidence that he, thought about uh, going and enlisting himself. I mean, by that time, he was uh, in his 40s, early 40s. He had three children. Uh, I, don't, I don't find that, but he's a very enthusiastic supporter of the war and a supporter of our taking the Philippines. Uh, his views in that are, I found, striking some of the Theodore Roosevelt's. So that's, that's the kind of thing we have to be, be careful about. The other thing that... Uh, 
I found are two other things. One is there's been a great deal of discussion, criticism about him in his record on race, which I think deserves criticism. But by and large, looking at the sources for his early life, which granted are not as not as plentiful as we'd like, race just doesn't figure in much there. He was living uh, as, a, as a young, as an adolescent uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. And South Carolina had a Reconstruction government, Republican Reconstruction government, which had a very large black participation. In fact, I don't know if it was a majority of the legislature, but an awful lot of the legislators were African-American. Uh, and I think the state treasurer, at least one of the state officers, was African-American. There were members of Congress who were African-American. And from what we know, what we have, all the evidence we have, you wouldn't know it about Woodrow Wilson. Now, part of it is he lived within a little world within a world, which is the world of the Presbyterian Church. His father was a minister. His father also was, when they went to Columbia, uh, was on the faculty of a theological seminary. So in many ways, that was, that was something of, of, a, of an insulated world. Uh, the other thing is, the question is, how much of a Southerner really was he? Because if he had stayed in the South, he would not have become president. The reason for that is neither party was going to nominate a white Southern. Uh, the Democrats, because they knew they had, that was their base, they knew they had it in the bag already, and what they had to do was compete uh, in northern states. The Republicans, because they had been pretty well shut out, and after 1890 accepted that, so there was no point uh, in doing that. So Wilson got elected president partly because he was governor of New Jersey, because he had left the South. And interestingly, from the time he went to college, he lived almost that entire time, from the age of 18 on, in the North. Uh, he did go back to the University of Virginia about a year and a half to study law. Then he had a couple of years, unhappy years, of practicing law in Atlanta. But after that, he lived, lived, lived in the North, and he had opportunities to go back to the South, which he declined to do. I found his racial attitudes much more like uh, white Northerners at that time. The distinction is that not that white Northerners were uh, immune to, let's call it racism, it was, but they weren't very concerned about race one way or the other. And in some ways, all that stuff, you know, this Northerners tended to look at it as a Southern problem, something that would take care of itself, especially when you had these, these nice, moderate uh, black leaders such as Booker T. Washington, who were, uh, had this gospel of self-help. And they put it aside. To them, this is a distraction and an annoyance, and there were more important things to deal with, such as the trust, such as these economic issues. The distinction there is a Southern white, not just these 
nasty racist demagogues like Tom Watson in Georgia and James K. Vardaman in Mississippi, who were blatantly, openly, uh, viciously hostile to African Americans. But even the genteel ones, such as the members of Wilson's cabinet, for them, race was an ever-present reality, something that they were always sensitive about. And there was always this hypervigilance about anything anything that might be perceived, possibly perceived, as a threat to white supremacy. That's not Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson had, had the Northerners' attitude. The thing that is held against him most in the, uh, uh, the current tax audit is his willingness to try to introduce segregation into the federal workplace. Now, what happened there was, first of all, Segregation, those gradually, informally, those things had already been going on. In fact, they pretty much got their start under Theodore Roosevelt. When Wilson came in, the Southern members of his cabinet argued to him that they said that a lot of people down out, people were terribly worried that black women are being bossed around by black men, which wasn't true, but that was what it was. And they said, we think it'd be a lot better if we introduced segregation. And that, that there was there was a a positive spin that they put on segregation, which is that if you separate the races, you'll have less tension and things will be much better. And Wilson's attitude was, okay, give it a try if you want to. He didn't initiate it. He didn't go along with it, which I think was shameful. But he went, he was worried about the Southern base. And some African-American historian friends of mine have said, they can understand that a Democrat of that time had a white Southern base. The Great Migration had just begun, was kicking in slowly. There was no substantial black electorate in the North, no, no place where, where you had a, a, a black beginnings of an African-American power base. That, I think, has been the most significant change, which really led, I, I think, was a major factor in having our second reconstruction in the 1960s was that African-Americans had political leverage. They had political leverage uh, and were willing to use it. And white politicians in the North saw this and wanted to take advantage of it, of course. So, you know, Wilson, I, I think his Southern background is something that has to be looked at carefully. It's there. He often said he was from the South. He was not ashamed of it. He didn't try to play it down, but he didn't play it up either. It wasn't something that was, it was on his mind um, much of the time. The other thing I could say that I think needs to, be, needs to be looked at very carefully about Wilson is his religion. Uh, I, think, I think with the exception of Jimmy Carter, he is the most conspicuously religious president we would have. I mean, he, for one thing, he looked and he talked like uh, a preacher. Uh, you list the recordings of him, I think you can picture him in the pulpit of a great metropolitan church. The National Cathedral, Riverside Church in New York, somewhere like that. In other words, a very high-toned, very learned, learned uh, cleric. He was the son, grandson, nephew 
later became son-in-law of Presbyterian ministers. So sure, but he came out of a very liberal, uh, both socially and theologically liberal uh, part of Protestantism. Also, the Presbyterians in those days were definitely the most cerebral and intellectual uh, uh, Protestants. I mean, uh, what, we, what we tend to forget is that for several centuries, the real intellectuals of the English-speaking world were the Scots, not the English. And the roots of Presbyterianism, of course, were in Scotland. So that this is the background he brought. Uh, he, there's no evidence whatever that he ever wanted to be a minister himself, or that his father, who was a rather worldly cleric, ever tried to push him in that direction. Uh, his religion was deeply felt, deeply considered, but something that was in the background. He, I, one of the most interesting things he said was, right after the sinking of the Lusitania, you know, the president gets lots of mail, and he was talking to his stenographer to dictate answers, and one, one correspondent had said, Mr. President, in the name of God, declare war. His <laughs> comment was, war is not declared in the name of God. It is a human affair altogether. Mm. Now, I think some of his religious thinking did enter into some things, I think especially his decision and his decision to go to war. But this man was no zealot, he was no crusader, uh, he was, certainly was no fundamentalist, and he wasn't even particularly that much evangelical. If there's any 20th century religious, American religious figure, I think he resembles more than anybody else, it would be Reinhold Niebuhr. So you know, these are the things about Wilson. It's, it's awfully easy to look at. Well, he was born in the South, look at all these Presbyterian ministers, so what you have is a, a southern, a southern, white southerner, uh, and a some kind of religious zealot. No, no, that that's just that's all wrong about that. John, can we do one footnote on on your points uh, before we turn to some other issues quickly? About ten minutes left sure. about uh, Wilson as a communicator. He set out from very early life to make himself a master of the spoken word. And yep. it's very interesting when people can listen on YouTube to hear Wilson speak. And one of the things that's so striking about it when compared with others of his era, such as Theodore Roosevelt, is that he had basically what in the mid 20th century became a broadcaster's accent. He sounds like he's from everywhere, as well as being very mellifluous. Well, first of all, Jim, that was deliberate. At some point, he worked to pretty much rid himself of the Southern accent. He worked on broadening his A's, uh, toning down the twang, the drawl. So yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, he sounds like, like he could be from, from any place, right? You know, the, the, the network voice uh, there. He, he worked at that. He certainly worked at communication. It's interesting that when I said he sounds like a preacher and looked like one, he looked like one. Um, yes. He did not. He did not take preaching as his model for political leadership. The one who did was Theodore Roosevelt. And he yes. talks about the bully pulpit and uh, yeah, really did. I mean, he did see himself. Even though I think I think T.R. was actually something of a religious skeptic, but he certainly T.R. saw the social utility of religion and acted like a preacher. Wilson did not. His model, no surprise was education. He wanted to educate the public. Now, but he also saw it, I think, 
frankly, any good teacher did. Education is two-way street. You also listen to and learn from your students. So very much it's communication. It's, it's not just persuasion and exhortation, but it's also listening. And the, the root, you know, I, the, the Latin root for education is educare, which means to draw forth. Now, there are two different ways that that can be read. One usually is, I will draw you forth from your ignorance. But the other way to read it, equally legitimate, is I will draw forth from you the gifts that you have within yourself, your capabilities. Either way, this presumes that people, if you inform them enough correctly, if you give them enough freedom of choice, they'll do the right things. It's an optimistic view of human nature. And that's where the Calvinist background, I don't think, <clears throat> in this way, I don't think that weighed heavily on Wilson, or pretty much at all. I mean, he really had a very optimistic view of human nature. By the way, that, I think, is in direct contrast to T.R. I think T.R. is much more of a pessimist about human nature, believed that people had to be exhorted and inspired, and inspire is to breathe something into them give them something they haven't got already. So that's, you know, that, that Wilson's model, Wilson's model was education. Uh, he could, he could become an evangelist too. Uh, he, he, he wasn't a stranger to, to arousing the emotions. Uh, he saw the utility of that and he did it. And especially then when you get to, when you get to the war, you get more of that. Although he never really became a crusader. I think, I think that's just a mistake. Uh, to what extent was his, uh, public communications approach reflective of his admiration for Prime Minister Gladstone in Great Britain? That's an interesting question. Um, Gladstone enjoyed a, a tremendous reputation uh, throughout the English-speaking world. Uh, part of it in the United States was Gladstone was Prime Minister in the 1870s and 1880s. This is a time when American politics was not terribly inspiring. Uh, I think I think some of those presidents have gotten the, too much of a bum rap, but it was a time when American politics was <clears throat> definitely viewed as being <clears throat> something that had fallen off from the great days of the founders, uh, from the great great <clears throat> from Lincoln and the great days of the, the Civil War, and of course <clears throat> you look over there <clears throat> in in Britain. And here's this shining example. <clears throat> I'm not. <clears throat> I'm not sure. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a story in the family that, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> that Wilson, uh, as a boy, took a picture of one of these in photo, in these engraving illustrations for a magazine of Gladstone, and put it up over his over his desk. <clears throat> that may be. I'm. I was never persuaded from everything I read that Gladstone himself, you know, as a personal model, <clears throat> was, was really, really that important to him. He was simply a model of how you can have a high-toned, uh, you know, high-toned, uh, uh, principled, principled statesman who is such a wonderful contrast to what we were seeing in our own country. Uh, it's, yeah, it, it's there. Wilson, interestingly, um, you know, he is one of uh, oh, seven or eight presidents who've had a foreign-born parent. 
His mother was born in England. Uh, he is the only president, <clears throat> except Andrew Jackson, who had no American-born grandparents. So this notion that Wilson somehow comes from some old stock American family just isn't so. <clears throat> Therefore, most people wanted to, and, and of course he grew up admiring Walter Scott, Wordsworth, Shakespeare, romantic poets, Dickens, uh, cultural anglophile, literary, literary, literary anglophile. Sure. The question there is, who wasn't? I mean, this was just the common the coin of the realm there. Uh, and um, yeah, sure. He, he, he liked, he traveled several times in England and Scotland when he was, before he was president, uh, did that. But that's, I don't think that that cut very deep. When he, as a political scientist, one of the things he did was to compare our separation of power system with the British parliamentary system, the parliamentary systems in general and Britain's in particular, and found theirs uh, superior. Now, why? Though? It was not because he was a sentimental anglophile. A little bit, but that that was that was beside the point. For him, the point was their system worked better, better in the sense that I think I mentioned before. You want to make government more transparent, more accountable. You want to be able to exercise power efficiently, uh, and if things go wrong, you want to hold people responsible. And he, it's, it's really, it's very much, a, it's, it's impersonal. It's like putting these two down on the table and measuring them both, and theirs comes out comes out better there. So, South religion, Anglophilia, all of these things that are very easy to pin on Wilson, uh, I think are can be terribly misleading. Well, we have in our time left. I'd like to turn to your career a bit, John Cooper. You're one of those unusual people who has dedicated your entire and extraordinarily productive career to a great extent around one political figure. And I want to ask you, are there significant matters relating to Woodrow Wilson, to leadership, to American history about which you've changed your mind over time? Oh, <laughs> better to ask, what haven't I changed my mind about? Um, one thing, one thing that I have to say I've said this often, and I'll say it anytime I have a chance. <clears throat> I think, I think I seriously, seriously underestimated the importance of race, the centrality and importance of race. Uh, and I come to this view some time ago, gradually, not that some epiphany there. Easy to say, oh, Black Lives Matter, and oh boy, it opened my eyes. Uh, no, it opened my eyes further, but no, no. My own interest in Wilson, I, I <laughs> tried to go out of my way to uh, correct what I would call a historiographical fallacy. By that, I mean an awful lot of historians, particularly younger ones starting out, but plenty of older ones too. They'll take a few facts, switch them together, and there you've got a great causal interpretation. Well, okay, I come from an expatriate Southern background. My family was from North Carolina. They were Presbyterians. Uh, I went to a high school named after Wilson. I went to Princeton to his university. 
I had a fellowship in grad school that was named after him. So, okay, that's bending the twig, right? <laughs> no. Um, my, my attitude, first of all, my attitude toward, as a kid towards Southern background was I thought the, big, the biggest favor my parents had ever done me was to get out of the South. <clears throat> now, the reason for that was not that I was you know, precociously enlightened on subjects of race or whatever. Like, no, no, I just, to me, they got me out of Dolesville. You know, it was H.L. Macon talk, talk about the Sahara of the Beaux-Arts down there. Well, I had that attitude before I ever heard of H.L. Macon. And I had, you know, I had the typical, my religious upbringing, I'd almost put that in quotation marks, you know, went to study school, participated in church youth group, did that. We never had any serious Bible study. I, I never read a complete book of the Bible so I was in college. Never knew much about Calvinism or predestination, again, until I was in college and studied it, uh, studied it in, in, in various courses. So that, that wasn't it. And then when I started out to be a historian, I first thought I wanted to work on the 1930s. And I was particularly interested in isolationism and you know, that, that debate. And when I first started working on it, what I found was that uh, that debate, the isolationists, we think of Charles Lindbergh and other resources, FDR, uh, that was actually the second act. That the ideas, the rhetoric, and a lot of people, leaders involved, had gotten started 25 years earlier in the First World War. In other words, the great confrontation and debate over America's role in the world, I think really started with the First World War. And, well, I you know, look in 1930s, I'm looking at only the second act, and I wanted to go back and look at the first act. Uh, and that's what, I got, I got hooked on period. I, I simply got fascinated with that, with that era. And sure, Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, Robert LaFollette, those great figures, if, if your interest like mine was in political history, you're going to be attracted to them, but it was it was a, it was a, a gradual thing. And most of my work up until you know I did the, the, the book on uh, T. R. and Wilson uh, it was gradually approaching him uh, by degrees. It was it was not that I was so fascinated with him. I must say once I did uh, did encounter him and then get deeply into studying him, I did find him really quite fascinating. But that's in some ways that era was. It sounds sentimental to say it or excessive, but there was in some ways a second golden age of American politics. Not only did you have such great inspirational leaders as T.R. Wilson, Lafollette, uh, Bryant, but you also had a depth, and a sophistication, intellectual depth and sophistication that. We rarely had. We, that's what we had in the generation of the founders. You have some of that in the Civil War. You have it then. And as much as well, a lot of bright people and things since then, I don't think we've had anything like that since then. So that, it was really, it was more the era, the times, uh, that attracted me more than, more than the person. But um, as I say, I, 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 found him excellent company for a long time. And you brought him to life for many, many of us. And 
Professor John Cooper, it's truly an honor to have you with us. There's so many additional topics, and I hope that you'll be open to coming back on another time in the future. Love to do it, Jim. And want to thank you also on behalf of all of us for your tremendous service in bringing American history to life, to holding us to a higher standard than I think most people would agree that we've met in recent decades. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us today. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok. Connect via our website, servetolead.org as well. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.